I want to talk to you. We're just going to entitle this The Monument of Grace. And as we go along, I hope, you, I know you'll understand hopefully what that means. But now this that, uh, that I want to share with you today uh, has taken me over 50 years to, to understand this, to even see this, uh, to grasp it. And uh, uh, I had the whole idea, the whole concept, if you will, of the cross and I want to just say to you, not arrogantly, but a lot of the church, if not most of the church, especially the American church, uh, we, we've had it backwards. And that's, another, that's what religion will do to us. Uh, I grew up hearing and hearing preach that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross was all about God pouring out all of his uh, anger and wrath upon Jesus instead of us so that uh, uh, we could be forgiven, of course, and that we could be accepted by God in heaven when we died. Um, e even hearing that when I was a young believer, one thing that always troubled me, you know, if God, if God poured out all his wrath upon Jesus, why are we still talking about the wrath of God? If Jesus, I mean, didn't it get extinguished in Jesus then? Um, you know, you just have them thoughts like that. It just doesn't make sense. And, and then I heard it preached and declared and believed that God is the one that actually uh, killed Jesus on the cross. God killed his son. Uh, he did it, uh, again, to on our behalf, but to satisfy some legal need for bloodshed. And, and, and if that's so, then what that's, this does, and of course, I, obviously, I don't believe that's what happened, but it falsely portrays God as engaging in child sacrifice that we all know is wrong. Um, that version of what happened at the cross, I want to tell you, is absolutely backwards to what really happened. Now, all of us in this room have grown up in America, most of us, uh, but where the famous, the most famous sermon, according to Google, that's ever been preached was preached by Jonathan Edwards, and it was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, it's still looked upon by most as the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, and if you read the transcript, which I have of that sermon, uh, it'll scare the Hades out of you. Let me read you an excerpt from the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He says, This God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, hates you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Isn't that a good sermon? Don't that just make you feel good for going to church? But that's what was preached. That was just a small excerpt of it. And it didn't get any better. And this is the image that the 
American traditional church has really had, and many still do have, of God. That's how he looks at all of us. Some say that's how he looks, maybe not at us now that we've put our faith in him and he looks at sinners that way, though. That doesn't look like, sound like anything uh, like the Father that Jesus Christ came to show us when he came to earth, does it? Um, I, I want to tell you this. It, that's, again, that sermon was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But I want to tell you, it's not about sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's about God himself submitting himself into the hands of angry sinners. And, and that's in the Bible. Now, I tried to find verses somewhere in the four Gospels that said God, you know, was you know, all angry and poured out his uh, fury and wrath on Jesus. I can't find them. You'd think they'd be in there. I mean, you heard, we've heard it all, all our lives. Matthew 26 and 45, it actually says that God submitted to the hands of sinners. It says in verse 45 of Matthew 26 that he came to his disciples, and this is Jesus talking, and he says to them, are you still sleeping and resting? This is when he was asking them to pray for, with him for an hour. He said, the hour is at hand, the Son of Man is being betrayed, or betrayed into the hands of who? So it's not, it's not sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's God submitting himself through Jesus Christ into the hands of angry sinners. You see how backwards we've had it? Matthew 16 and 21. It says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things now, it's going, to put, it's going to put a specific on who these people are. From the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, he's going to be killed and be raised the third day. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 18 and 19. It says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him. God didn't condemn him. It says they will condemn him to death. You see what it says? Who's doing the condemning here? They are. It says, they will condemn him to death, verse 19, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock him and to scourge him and to crucify him, and then on the third day he will rise again. I could read you verse after verse, and I, for the sake of time, I just won't do it. I can go through all four Gospels and, and read you, and it will say that again and again and again, that Jesus is being handed over to the hands of sinful men, that Jesus is being condemned by these men, and that these men are elders and scribes and Pharisees. He's being condemned by the religious elite of that day. He's being condemned by the Gentiles, which are the Romans. He's being condemned, and he's not only being condemned and handed over, but he's also being betrayed by one of his very own, Judas. Now, if you don't think that that's true, that God is the one that is submitting into the hands of angry people, then, then you, you just need to read the Gospels, particularly of John. They all give this account, but John uh, gives it so clearly. And in John, I'm not going to read all these verses for the sake of time, but in John 18, uh, Jesus has gone with his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And, and Judas knew very well where that place was. And he has gone and slipped out of the upper room where they were doing the Last Supper, so to speak, and, and he has betrayed Jesus. And now... He is coming, leading uh, them to where this kind of a secret place, favorite place of Jesus to hang out with his disciples was, that Judas knew very well. And 
one of the words that they used in, in a lot of the Gospels uh, to describe the Roman soldiers that accompanied this, this uh, arrest was cohort. You know what a cohort is? It's 600 armed Roman soldiers. 600. Do you really need 600 armed Romans to arrest one guy? It says also that they're being accompanied by the temple police that work for the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, all, the, all the officials of the temple. And it actually says in John 18 that they are, are being led by Judas, the betrayer, and, and they are coming to arrest Jesus, and it says that they are coming with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So I want you to see the image of what's happening here. And when they walk in, you got 600 marching armed Roman soldiers ready for battle. You got the temple police. It doesn't tell us exactly how many. All they had, I'm sure, came. And, and, and this, this mob scene, if you will, accompanies these Roman soldiers. And, and when Jesus sees them, he walks up to them and said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, of course, replies in Arabic and says, I am. And when he says, I am, the Bible says they all fell backwards. This is not a lay hands on a meeting for prayer. This is 600 Roman soldiers that fall on their back to the ground. Lay there if they're paralyzed. They don't even know what's hit them. And John put that in his gospel because he wants you to ask the question, why is that in there? And why do we need to know that? Because God wants you to see that if it was not him submitting himself to the hands of sinful men, there is no one that could arrest him. Jesus said out of his own mouth, my life is my own. I, 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 no man taketh my life from me. He said, I can lay it down, and if I lay it down, I can take it back up again. That is God submitting himself to, 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 to these angry, vengeful, vindictive men. And then the most amazing verse is verse 12 of John 18. It says, this detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews, they arrested Jesus and bound him. What an image. They go from lying on their backside and having to get back up off the ground. And all Jesus did was say the words, I am, which is the name of God, by the way. Now, some people preached and taught me that the cross was God's idea. That God created the cross. That that was in his plan that God, you know, God did the cross. That's, God did that. If that's true, then we worship a cosmic abuser that who has a sadistic mind to develop something so horrible of a torture device called the cross. I want to tell you that God did not invent the cross, nor did God create the cross. He, he anticipated it because he's God. He saw it because he's God. Bible says in Revelation that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world and God surely seen 
in eternity future, if you will, how that would occur. The cross is the most horrible, horrific torture device ever conceived in the mind of darkened, fallen, sinful men. The cross is designed to keep a man alive as long as possible and in as much pain as possible. It's, it's horrendous. Uh, the, the cross actually causes the person to eventually suffocate. The, the, the cross was invented by the Persians. Um, it was perfected by the Romans. They would take someone on this, this cross and they would nail them to it. And people that were nailed to the cross, would most of them would live about 24 hours. Hardly any could survive longer than that. But it was designed to keep them there in as much pain as possible, and it was designed to give the viewers a, a spectacle of torture and something to evoke fear, because what this man did could happen to you if you do what he did. Uh, the Romans, they didn't even use it on their own people. It had to be the most heinous of crimes for a Roman to be placed upon a cross. They would nail this person to the cross and they would use seven-inch spikes. I know it's tradition that we think that Jesus was nailed here in the palm of his hand, but archaeological uh, proofs have proven that not to be so. And if you knew anatomy and physiology, uh, you would know that would not work. It would simply pull right through the palm. But they were nailed in the wrist, which is considered and referred to in the Greek and Hebrew as still, that's part of the hand. They would go between the ulna and the radius, those two bones that join, at the wrist join, and, and that would hold the person there. And they would nail these spikes in there. And when they would nail those spikes, it would sever the median nerve and literally leave the person not only in excruciating, that's the word that we invented when the cross was invented, excruciating. We didn't even have that word until the cross came. And it would, it would paralyze the victim and, in, and cause immense pain. They would, they would take the cross and they would put their legs, their feet, one on top of another, and they had a little stoop or a little wedge nailed there. And that's where they would put their, their feet on top of that wedge, and they would have their knees bent at a 45-degree angle, and they would drive one seven-inch spike through both feet and into the beam of the cross. Now, what the wedge was for was to allow the victim to push up on that wedge so that he could inhale and get a breath and stay there. And the person would, would hang there, and, and, and you have to remember that before Jesus being put on the cross, he was scourged. Some call it the cat of nine tails, just a leather strap, irregardless with pieces of bone sharpened at the end of the leather straps, and they would beat him and snatch it off of him, and it would literally just tear flesh. He received 39 of those straps. The person would hang there 
on that cross and 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 they would the the weight of their body hanging would begin to cut off their breathing. Hence, they would push up with their feet and try to breathe in, and then they would exhale. And this would go on for hours and hours and hours. Now, sometimes they said, and they did even in when Jesus was being crucified, because remember, on either side, there was a thief being crucified at the same time. And the Roman soldiers wanted to go home to be with their family, and they had a habit and a custom of after you know many hours, and if the other people kind of saw all they wanted to see and went home, they would break the legs of the victim. The reason they did this is that would prevent them from pushing up on that wedge, and they couldn't get their breath, and they would go ahead and suffocate and die, and they could go home to supper. Uh, it had prophesied by the prophets that not one bone of Jesus' body would ever be broken. But he would be bruised. He would be wounded. He would be chastised. He would be scourged. He would be beaten. He would be spit upon. He went through all of that before he ever even went to the cross. While he's hanging on the cross, the person would, would, would finally their thigh muscles, their legs would give out, and they had no more strength to push up any further to get a breath. And then all the weight is shifted now to the, to the hand, to the wrist. And the full weight of the body now is pulling upon the wrist. And then when it would do that, it would dislocate their joints. Shoulders would always dislocate. And their arms now would be six inches longer than they were. Excruciating pain from dislocation. David, King David, a prophet, 1,000 years before the cross uh, was even uh, invented, he saw it prophetically. And he wrote about it in Psalm 22. Listen to what he says. He says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. That's dehydration, blood loss, all that. For dogs have surrounded me. He's talking about the Gentiles. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments. He said, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David, a thousand years before it happens, is given an exact, detailed, specific description of what the Messiah would endure and go through. Now, I grew up hearing another lie that was preached ferociously that God is so holy that he can't look at sin. I hit that a lot around here. And as proof that he can't look at sin, when him who knew no sin, his son, became sin, then God turned his back on Jesus while he was dying. That God, his father, turned his back on his own son and left him alone to suffer by himself 
that never sounded right to me. And it is a diabolical lie that is still preached today in most Christian pulpits. And it, 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 it portrays God as some horrible God. If God turned his back on Jesus, then what hope do you and I have of him not turning his back on us when we sin? I want to tell you and assure you that God did not turn his back on Jesus. And Jesus knew the Father had never uh, forsook him on the cross. And I'll get to what his statement in a moment, but I want to say this to you. Did G Do you think Jesus knew the Bible? Do you think he knew? I mean, he's called the Word. Do you think he knew the Word? <laughs> he is the Word. But do you think he knew the written Word? Well, then if he did, he knew Psalm 22. And in that same psalm that I'm just was reading from, from David, in verse 24, it says, For he has not, talking about God, despised nor abhorred, which means hated the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. It says there that God would not hide his face from him. Jesus knew when he went to the cross that his father would not abandon him. God does not do abandonment. God does not, God does not unchild his children. He doesn't do it. We've had it so wrong. We've had the cross so wrong. What it is is the cross, that, that diabolical torture device, it originated in the minds of broken, blind men that were committed to darkness. And yet, God submitted himself to it. Jesus entered into our darkness on the cross. I mean, he, he willingly climbed into the very worst torture device, met us at the very deepest and darkest place of our own imprisonment of our own lies. Jesus is God giving his very best to us by entering into our very worst. And how would religious people interpret this awesome, horrific sacrifice on the cross? How, how would they look at it? Well, to know that, you, you just have to read Isaiah 53, because Isaiah the prophet prophesied what our reaction would be to this sacrifice. He said in verse 4, Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet, 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 we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He said religious people are going to look at this sacrifice, and even though the, what he's doing is he, he's carrying our, our darkness, he's, carrying, he's entering into our sin, into our sorrow, and into our brokenness, into our pain, he's entering into that, yet what we're going to say is that yet we're going to say, no, he's stricken by God. He's being smitten by God. Isaiah prophesied that. He started out in Isaiah 53 and 1 and said, who's going to believe this report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord extended? He said, God's going to do something here. And God's going to do something that's going to, that's going to eradicate this thing called sin. God's going to climb into our darkest pit of hell. God's going to get into Adam. He's going to become Adam. He's going to be so one with, 
with, with Adam that he's going to be called the last Adam. He, how did God save us? He's a redemptive genius. He, he climbed in and, and see, it doesn't say in the beginning, you know, it says John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The, I told you the word with there is the Greek word pros, P-R-O-S. And it don't mean accompanied somebody like, will you go with me to the, to the mall? No, no, it means turned face to face in intimate love and relationship. So in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was turned face to face with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 it says, and the Word became, what is it? Flesh. Jesus, the Word, did not become human, anthropos. It doesn't say that Jesus became human, that the Word became human. It said the Word became flesh. What, what, what's the difference between human and flesh? Flesh is the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, and, 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 and it's humanity trapped in darkness. Jesus didn't become just human. Jesus became and crawled into to humanity's darkness. He, he saw it from the inside. He, he, he went in. To, to, to us, to, to the flesh, he went in to, to all of Adam's blindness. The, the blindness that came on Adam when he chose to, to go against God, to believe the lies of the enemy, and the, the blindness that called, caused Adam to hide from God. Jesus went inside. Jesus wasn't God pretending to be human he was the god man and, and, and can i say this to you that was an eternal decision that the word made because he will always be linked and be human and divine in one it was an eternal decision for the word to become flesh jesus entered inside adam's blindness our blindness the darkness Isaiah also said that when we saw this going on, this sacrifice, it says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it said we hid our faces from him. We've been hiding ever since the garden. And we think we're right. We think you're supposed to hide from God. Everybody out here in the world is hiding from God, and they think that's the safe place because this God, and I don't blame them for hiding. If you heard Jonathan Edwards preach, I'd hide too. If I, if I believed in, in the God that Jonathan Edwards dreamed up in his own mind of religion and preached it, and how he was trying to get people to God was scare the living hell out of them and let, make them believe that God hates them and God's dangling you over the fire and you're, you're, you, he, he can't stand to even look at you. I'd hide too. And we've been hiding ever since because of the lies that's been portrayed about this God. But I want to tell you this. This is Jesus. This is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. This is Jesus, and what he's doing is he is submitting himself to our torture device. And, and, he, and what he's going to do and what he did 
is he is transforming that torture device, the most heinous, diabolical thing that a man could think of that would torture a, a human and bring death to them in the most excruciating way. What God's going to do is he's going to climb into that device. He's going to willingly submit himself to our darkness, and he's going to transform that torture device into a, an icon or a monument of grace. Redemptive genius. That cross is so precious that you wear it around your neck as jewelry. You wear it on your bracelets. You have it in your rings. It's jewelry. It is common to wear it. Why would we, we, we wear a torture, heinous device like that because for what it symbolizes now. It symbolizes God flipped it. God made it a monument of hope. God made it an icon of grace. And, and what it does is it screams to us that there is no evil and no darkness so evil and so dark and so horrible that God won't climb right into it to save you. <laughs> There's nothing so, so diabolical, so so horrific and so dark and so painful and so, so terrible that God wouldn't go into it for you. And also what it represents is there is nothing so dead that it cannot be resurrected. That God can take even the most horrendous things and bring life back out of it. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, we wear it. And you should keep wearing it. And I'm glad you wear it as jewelry. And you see it, obviously, no longer as just a torture device invented by the minds of darkened, vengeful, hateful men. But now you see it that God, through Christ, crawled into that darkness and willingly submitted to our worst machine of torture. And he did it that he may enter into the most darkest place inside of our flesh, our fallen, blinded darkness. There's only one time in all the Bible that Jesus Christ ever spoke to his father and called him God. Once. Every other time, he called him Abba, which is Aramaic for daddy. Abba. He called him Papa. 
He called him Father. Only one time did he call him God, and that's while he was hanging on the cross, and he makes this statement, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Some say that he said that because he was feeling what Adam felt, that he would feel that, 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 that lie, that darkness, yet inside he knew what Psalm 22 said, that God would not turn his back on him, nor would God abandon him. We have taken that statement and said, see there? See there? God forsook his son. God turned his back on him. I started to have them put up the slide, but I knew they had their plate full today. But yesterday I was in my office and I was looking on, the, on Google. And I did was pleasantly surprised to find several images many of them are Italian, paintings and so forth, of the crucifixion of Jesus hanging literally on the cross dying. And I saw several, and I started to put up one for you guys, but let me just describe it to you. It, it showed that Jesus dying on the cross and the brutality of that device, but it also showed God the Father wrapped his arms around standing but right behind his son had his arms wrapped around both ends of the cross and holding Jesus. And then it showed, in most of the pictures, they don't know how else to, to display the Holy Spirit. It showed the dove, uh, you know, sitting on the top of the cross right there with Jesus. <laughs> and when I saw that yesterday, I said, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. God didn't forsake him. The Bible says, and Paul made it very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 15, the latter verses, the latter verse, the last verse, for God was in Christ when he hung on the cross, reconciling the sin of the world to himself, not imputing man's trespasses against them, not keeping a record, not counting your sins. You have a zero sin account, uh, balance in your sin account. It is zero. It's been wiped clean. Even the one you're going to do tomorrow or next week. Now, I pray you don't have it circled on your calendar and you got your day timer to do it. But even if you do, I want to say to you that you've already been forgiven. Because Jesus did not lie, nor did John, when he said the Lamb of God is right here. And he's going to take away the sin of the world. He's going to eradicate it. The apostles didn't lie when they said Jesus is the propitiation not only for our sins that's believed in him, but for the sins of the whole world. He's took them away. And that's why God's not angry at anybody no more. And that's why he don't send Katrina, tornadoes, and hurricanes, and floods to judge people because he's already forgiven the world. That's why in Romans 10, it tells you how to get saved. Don't mention the word sin in that whole chapter, not one time. It simply says, believe on the Lord. Believe in your heart. Confess Jesus is your righteousness with your mouth. You're saved. That's why in the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, when he asked that great apostle Paul after the jailhouse break, when God the Spirit set him free at midnight, he looked at this great apostle that had previously been chained to the wall 
And he said, what must I do to be saved like you? He didn't mention the word sin. What a glaring omission if we're supposed to bow your head, confess your sins. My God, I wish we would stop lying to people. And stop acting like the cross meant nothing and Jesus didn't accomplish anything significant and we're still having to waller and deal in our sin and darkness. Jesus changed everything. And that apostle looked at this Gentile, this dog, and simply said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved and your household. Just believe. What I want you to do today is I want you to believe what I've told you is true. Just believe. And if you believe that, you're saved. You're absolutely, eternally saved. What are you saved from? You're saved from your darkness. The Bible said in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And it says all things, nothing that is made came into existence without Him. It says that He came into our darkness, but the darkness could not comprehend it. We're so blinded by our lies that we've believed about God, we, we just can't even comprehend that God is as good as He says He is. It says the light came into the darkness, but the darkness didn't understand. And most of us, including me, have not understood what God was really doing by submitting Himself to our torture device that God did not invent. God was not killing His Son and God never turned his back on his son. He was in Christ while Christ was being crucified. The Holy Spirit was there. The triune God who is distinct and separate, yet it is, it is, it is, it is wrong language. It, 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 does, it, it does wrong to even refer to them without saying they're one because of their their. Oneness, unity, love for one another. God did that for us. And he went to your deepest, darkest, blindest, horrific place. And he had to go there because he couldn't leave anything untouched. And he saved us. And he freely gave that grace to all men. And he freely forgave the world of all sin. And God said, I'm going to get my kids back home with me. I'm bringing them home. Jesus prayed that in John 17. And he said, Father, I pray that they may be one even as you and I are one. And I pray that they know that I'm in you and you in me and that they are in us. Read it. And he said that, I pray that the love that you have for me, that will also, that love will be in them. And let them know that you love them in the same way, in the same love that you therefore love me. See, we've been blind to that. We didn't know that we were included in that. But I'm here to tell you that you are. And this is what we're going to celebrate right now. I'm not going to ask you, if you've not taken communion before at Grace Point, we don't want you to search your heart for sin because you're not going to find any. 
we're not going to offend God by acting like Jesus didn't accomplish what he came to do. When Jesus was on the cross, when he said it's finished, he really did not lie. It was finished. And he didn't cover sin. He took it away. So Jesus said, when you do this, do this often in remembrance of me, not in remembrance of what you've done or haven't done. Well, I thought there was a verse that said somewhere that we're supposed to search your heart for sin. No, there's not a verse that. Paul said, let a man examine himself to look for Christ in him. Paul said, the only thing I want y'all looking for on the inside of yourself is Jesus. That's all, that's all it meant. Examine yourself. Then he said, for is not Christ within you? <laughs> that's what he said. Do you, do you understand? Listen to me. Christ is in every one of you in this room. And I pray today that you could come to that revelation of Christ in you. And I'm not making that up because the Apostle Paul in Galatians said that. He said, when it pleased the Father who separated me from my mother's womb to reveal Christ in me. You know what Paul said? All that time, all that hell I was raising, all them Christians I was killing, all that stuff I thought I was doing, I didn't know that whole time Christ was in me. God had to reveal Christ in me, not to me. Revealing Christ to you is external. Somebody can argue that away from you. But revealing Christ in you is internal. Can't nobody take that from you. Christ is in you. That's your hope of glory. Christ in you. You in Christ makes you a new creation. If any man be in Christ. But yet Christ said he's in you. And you're in Christ, which is true, Pastor. Yes, they both are. Christ is in you. You're in Christ. The Father's in the Son. Son's in the Father. The Spirit's in you. I heard a man say that he was sitting in his home. It was like yesterday, my little six-year-old granddaughter come from her soccer game and in tow, she had a little girl, little friend with her. I was on the lawnmower mowing the yards. Had a little window with no rain, so I thought I might take advantage. And but she loves her poppy, and she come running. I'm always mindful of her, you know, coming up on me, so I shut it down quickly. And the little girl was kind of in right there, and she would, that little girl was beaming and smiling at me. As far as I knew, I never even seen that little girl. The girl didn't know me. Thinking, why is she smiling? And she was smiling because she watched Addison jump up on the lawnmower in my lap, me to kiss her, love on her, and do all the poppy stuff that I live to do. I heard a man say he was sitting in his home, and his little boy was about the same age, seven, I think, maybe eight. And he'd come running in there, and he said, the, the, the guy said, I was sitting there about to watch a football game. Saturday, and he said, my little boy comes in, and he's got on a plastic camo hat and plastic machine gun and plastic knives, and, and, and he's dressed in camo, and so is another little boy whom he did not know. 
the, the daddy didn't know this other little boy. And, uh, and they come running in there, and he said they attacked him while he sat in his chair. And so he attacked back. And they began to waller and roll in the floor and laughing and giggling, and, and they got pretend guns going off. And he said he was shot, killed, and resurrected numerous times <laughs> over about 15 minutes. He said after 10 to 15 minutes of that, he said that he was absolutely exhausted. And he had done all he could do with the energy that he had. And he said that when that was going on, uh, he, he, that they left and he was sitting there and it hit him. I don't know that little boy that was all engaged in intimate combat with me. I, he don't know me. He don't know my heart. He don't know how I am. He didn't really know how I would react to an attack like that. He only saw me sitting in my recliner. But my son knows me. My son knows my heart. My son knew how I would react. And my son had revealed his father to this other little boy. And that other little boy got a glimpse of the father through his buddy, who is the son of that father. And therefore, unafraid, he engaged this man that he did not know in intimate play and laughter and combat, knowing he would not be rejected, nor would he be despised nor hurt. And he entered in into the joy that that son and that father share all the time. Do you get the point? That is the gospel. Jesus made a statement. He said, no one knows the Father but the Son. But he said, the Son knows him. And in John 17, he makes the most awesome statement. He said, Father, I have made you known to them, and I will make you known to them. Jesus said, it's my personal commitment that I'm going to enter into your darkness, into your blindness, and into your religion, into your vengeful torture machines and all. I'm going to enter into that darkness, and I'm going to reveal my Father to you because I cannot bear for you to not know my Father and how good he is. And I want you to enter into the joy that we have had from eternity I want you to know the joy, how it is for me and him and the Holy Spirit to live in constant unbroken communion, relationship, fellowship. And I want you to enter into that because you've always been in that and you've always been included. They said this morning on the praise team, Demisha said it, and it is correct. When he was crucified, we were crucified, right? Uh, Paul said it. When he was buried, we were buried. And when he was resurrected, we were resurrected. Well, you wasn't even born. How can that be? That was 2,000 years ago. You wasn't even on the radar as far as man's concerned. I mean, how can that be? Do you believe in that? You believe that's true? If you can believe that's true, then I want you to believe 
that everything else that the Bible says is true and that you were included in that triune relationship before eternity was. Well, how? Because you were in God. You were in God. And God would not bear you to not know him. Therefore, he came and crawled into Adam's fallen flesh to save us. That's the gospel. I pray you believe that. Because that is the truth. And I'm sorry it took me over 50 years, Father. <laughs> My wife was gone. She took the grandbabies to the store. It's kind of her Saturday routine. It gives me a little long time at the house because it gets pretty loud when they're there. But I love it. But as a pastor, I kind of need a little time to get ready for you guys. But I walked around my house. I'm sorry. I am a mess today. <laughs> uh, I usually try to hold it together better than this. But uh, I just said, Papa, you know, man. Huh. You know why did it take me 50 years to see this? Why did it take me 50 years? But I said, I am so glad I see it now. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling people about you so that they will know what I now know and they will feel what I now feel and they will experience your joy and how much you love me, and you love me when I'm all dressed up and Sunday pretty, and you love me when I'm just a wreck, and I've blown it as bad as a guy can blow it. Your affection doesn't move up and down on the scale. You doesn't change. You, you just love me. And I don't have to talk to you about all I've done wrong and that big, and you already forgave me before I ever did it. You already took care of it, so thank you for that. <laughs> And man, I just, I just walked around the house and like, how am I in the world? You know, and I couldn't really, I'm just telling you with all my heart, I couldn't wait to get here today to tell you this. I couldn't wait to get here to tell you, man, how much God loves you. <clears throat> oh, man. Whoever's helping us serve this, please come on. What a wonderful privilege it is to to partake of the Lord's communion. This is what Isaiah prophesied about. This is what I've preached about. And as we do this, then we're remembering him and what he did and the, and the length and the, and, the, and the level that he would go to to submit to sinful man. It is not about God in the sinners in the hands of an angry God, but it's about God willingly submitting into the hands of angry, sinful men. What a God. What a redemptive genius he is to do that for us. We're going to start, and of course, as they get everything, this middle section, if you're new to how we do it here at Grace Point, you just you guys can come. You can go ahead and start coming. And, of course, this, these two sides and, of course, the middle here. And so everybody come, and we'll, we'll, we'll partake of it all together. But if you'll come and get the bread and the wine, and then we will partake of this, and this will be our...
our ending part of the day. You know, Jesus said, Father, I want the love that you have for me to be in them. Who among anyone in the world does not want to know and experience the love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father? That's what we're, that, that's, that's what we're part of. Thank y'all so much. You can keep the music going. I love that. That's cool. Uh, Father, we remember the length that you would go to save us. And we are amazed by that. And so we do what Jesus did on that night that he was betrayed. Because he was about to enter into our betrayal, into our darkness. 
He was going to willingly submit himself into the hands of sinful men. He was going to climb on the most vicious torture chamber device ever created in the minds of broken, darkened men. And he was going to remove the plague that had plagued us since the garden of sin. The light was come. And the light entered our darkness. I pray we comprehend that today. For Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Receive this. And on that same night, he lifted the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Drink. Father, thank you for loving us so much. May you help us to be salt, light in this dark world. And may we reflect your goodness, your grace, your love, forgiveness to this world that is so blinded and have not seen the Father. Let us, Lord God, let them know and say what Paul said, be reconciled to God for he's already reconciled himself to you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody said amen. Oh, man, I love you guys today. If I could do a big, giant bear hug with all of you, I'd do it. You can pass your little cups to the, to the uh, I don't know which way y'all getting them, on the outside aisle or inside aisle, it doesn't matter. They'll find you. My deacons and all will take those from you. And once they do that, God bless you. Go enjoy your day. Shake hands with somebody. Bring somebody with you to church next week. God bless you.